Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network, a sadist, a madman, a sociopath seduced by the terrible allure of nuclear weapons. These are but a few of the pejoratives commonly used to describe United States Air Force General Thomas S. Power, Commander-in-Chief of Strategic Air Command, or SAC, from 1957 to 1964. Power's remit as CNC SAC was twofold deter the Soviet Union from launching a nuclear first strike on the United States, and plan to unleash Armageddon if they did. Neither was easily achieved. Effective deterrence hinged upon the actual possession of qualitatively superior weapon systems, combined with the perception that the United States was willing to use them. Loosing the nuclear dogs of war, in turn, depended on the exacting coordination of those weapon systems under combat conditions. SAC's mission was truly a Gordian knot. One power was determined to cut. Power approached the problem with an alacrity that transformed SAC into a formidable nuclear instrument, but which simultaneously earned him a less than flattering reputation. Within the Kennedy administration and among many members of the media, Power was seen as fatally unhinged, obsessed with nuclear weapons, violently anti-communist, and liable to start a nuclear war with the Soviets of his own volition. Whether accurate or not, This view dominated popular and historiographical appraisals of power for the better part of seven decades. In To Rule the Skies, General Thomas S. Power and the Rise of Strategic Air Command in the Cold War, published by Naval Institute Press, historian Brent Ziarnik takes aim at this mainstream historiographic narrative, telling in detail for the first time the story of Power's personal and professional life. Ziarnik refocuses our attention away from the hyperbole, and onto Power's substantive contributions to the development of America's strategic air and aerospace capability. It is my pleasure to have Brent here with me today, and I just want to note that the views expressed in this interview do not reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force, or the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base. Brent, welcome to New Books in Military History. Thanks for having me. Now, can you start us off by giving a little potted bio and tell us how you came to be interested in the career of Thomas S. Power? Sure. Uh, you know, when you asked me when I was at the Academy, uh, or the Air Force Academy, thinking I'm just about ready to start a career in uh, as a space officer, were you going to write a book about Thomas Power? I would have thought, nah, you've got someone else. The historians are down the road. I've got too much uh, astronautical engineering work that I have to deal with. But, you know, it's interesting. Um you know, I, I trained as an as an engineer, and then went into uh, active duty Air Force as a space operations officer. But I now I teach it, you know, professional military education at Air Command and Staff College, uh, which I've always enjoyed. But uh, I never thought I would be writing a book on power. But in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense because I I would consider myself now mostly a space power theorist. That is what my first book was about, and my second was an edited volume of, of General Power's Thoughts, because uh, it turns out that Power is a great unsung hero of the Air Force space business. 
how did I find that out? Well, I was fascinated. I've always been fascinated by early views of the military in space. So, you know, a lot of the Air Force controversies in the 40s through the 60s, uh, you know, what Navy people tried to do, like, uh, you know, l- retired Lieutenant Robert Heinlein and, mm-hmm. uh, and other people thought about space. But I remember reading a book on Project Orion, which we'll get into later, I'm sure, uh, mm-hmm. that mentioned that, uh, you know, the Air Force really didn't think a big deal out of it, except for this one guy named Tommy Power at Strategic Air Command. And it was like, wow, everything I'd ever heard about Thomas Power was that he was really, you know, sort of a dumber, more evil version of Curtis LeMay. You know, why would he be interested in space stuff? And, uh, and didn't really think much about it. But a few years later, I was reading an article about, uh, you know, the space, uh, the, the military Air Force space program by a guy named General I.B. Hawley. And he just sort of opened up with, hey, would, would space have been different had they given, you know, the space mission in the Air Force, not to Air Research and Development Command, uh, you know, an engineering command? What if they gave it to Strategic Air Command and, uh, you know, an operational command? And I remembered that. I remember thinking, it's like, I know exactly what SAC would have done with space because I read about Project Orion earlier. So I started reading about six years ago now as much as I could about Project Orion and especially the Air Force and the SAC, you know, the SAC interest in it. And the more I read, the more I just thought, wow, this general power guy was way different than what, um, you know, what I was led to believe. And uh, I ended up doing a lot of uh, research on this when I was going through uh, Air Command and Staff College and uh, the School for Advanced Air and Space Studies, because I'm a reserve officer now. And they allowed me to do a lot of historical research. And what originally started as a, you know, an Orion-centered you know, investigation really over time turned out to be, uh, you know, it's just an investigation of just how interesting uh, and misunderstood Tommy Power was. So, uh, you know, as a space person, I've been dealing with that, uh, you know, the, the space field most of my life. I was looking for a new space hero and found him, in, in my opinion, in, in Tommy Power. But he was so much more than that. So instead of writing a book on space, I had to write a book on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, to rule the skies definitely goes a long way toward adding nuance and complexity to our understanding of power as a military leader and thinker. I certainly initially approached the book with the the caricature that is probably familiar, the character of power that's familiar to anybody who's seen Dr. Strangelove. And you take that as the opening foil for To Rule the Skies, and you go a long way towards rehabilitating power's reputation. We briefly touched upon it there, but can you go a little bit into greater detail on what the popular culture, how the popular culture and the extant historiography views power and what what mistakes do historians make when they embrace this character? Well, there there is a caricature and uh, everyone falls for it, at least initially. I mean, I sure as heck did. Going through the Air Force Academy and, uh, you know, being in the military and the Air Force especially, uh, you're eventually going to run into Dr. Strangelove. And Dr. Strangelove is one of the most popular movies in the Department of Air Power, which I used to teach in here at uh, ACSC, because it's, you know, it's satire. But there's a lot of perceived truth behind 
behind it in that, uh, you know, even diehard air power historians would be like, yeah, SAC was a little bit over the top. But you have to remember that it really was satire. And it seems like the biggest satire to me in, in SAC uh, was General, you know, Brigadier General Jack Ripper. He was the wing commander that was very much anti-communist. You know, he kept talking about, uh, you know, protecting America's precious bodily fluids and, uh, you know, joking where he would only drink pure filtered rainwater and, uh, you know, pure grain alcohol. Anti-communist, obviously insane. And he ordered, you know, SAC bombers to attack the Soviet Union because he thought that was the only way that America could survive. So there's it's it's obviously satire. But at the same time, you all people even in the 60s would probably think in the back of their mind, it's like if people were crazy enough to contemplate nuclear war, would it take or would it appeal to that kind of uh, kind of mentality? You know, um, because. Uh, especially in the the 50s and 60s, the military was very much anti-communist and they were almost easy to satire. And General Power was one of the easiest. You know, a lot of people would argue that General Ripper was modeled after Curtis LeMay. And I think there might be a lot of truth to that. But really, Power strikes me as the person that they really that they really tried to model because uh, Power himself was an interesting character in that he didn't go to college. You know, he was the last general officer uh, not to have a college degree that was in active service. And uh, truthfully, he might not have even graduated high school, although I can't be sure about that. But it's not because he wasn't smart. It was because his family collapsed. You know, his father essentially abandoned the family when he was in the middle of high school. So he had to go out and work. But people can think, well, obviously, Thomas Power was dumb because he didn't go to college like everyone else. And of course, he has to be evil because he's contemplating nuclear warfare, you know, and he's anti-communist, which means he's probably a right-wing hardliner. It just goes into this. Well, obviously, then SAC was just a bunch of right-wing cavemen that were, you know, held back, held at bay by, you know, civilian control of the military. And thank God for that. But if, you know, the politicians give them one false move, they're going to start World War III on their own recognizance. Uh, and I think that just sort of has stuck. You know, maybe people don't think that that Stack really were lunatics, but um, they were probably a lot closer to that than not. And why is this perception wrong? It's, it's because this perception is it probably stuck around because it, it serves a lot of purposes. People need a narrative of the Cold War. The writers, the historians, you know, need a narrative of the Cold War. And you need a hero and villains. And uh, there was a lot of written records by uh, people from the, you know, civilians from the McNamara White House, the, you know, the so-called whiz kids uh, that were on paper much more, you know, had a lot better credentials, a lot better uh, resumes than a lot of the military folks. They went to the best schools. They were a part of think tanks. Um, they were uh, very smart, very persuasive, as opposed to the the SAC people, which were you know just flying all the time, unthinking, robotic, military discipline, uh, led by people that uh, you know essentially couldn't hack it in the civilian world. That's why they joined the military. So historians tend to view the civilians with a little bit more sympathy 
it's easier to ridicule the uh, the, the military people. And uh, then, honestly, even in the in the Air Force, you know, uh, we have a different Air Force today than we did in the early Cold War. Uh, the early Cold War Air Force was dominated by Strategic Air Command and the bomber barons, but power was pretty much the last of the of the hardcore, larger than life bomber barons. And uh, his retirement in 1964 sort of led to, you know, the escalation of the Air Force, at least in the Vietnam and the rise of the fighter pilot. And, you know, maybe the fighter pilots didn't care that much uh, that SAC got slimed a little bit in reputation if they could use it to uh, to legitimize the fact that they were in charge of the Air Force now and not the the bomber people that essentially came up with air power theory. The other group is the people that really liked the ICBM as the ultimate weapon. Again, these were a lot of civilians, but even some military people like General Bernard Schriever, who is credited to be the uh, Air Force's uh, father of the space and missile program. But uh, a lot of people thought that the ICBM was the ultimate weapon. And uh, Power didn't think that. Uh, Power was a huge space advocate really brought the ICBM into, uh, you know, developed it as the commander of Air Research and Development uh, Development Command in the late uh, 50s, and really brought it to uh, operational fruition in Strategic Air Command in the early 1960s. Uh, But he thought it was just one weapon of many. And we still needed bombers. We still needed to think about other delivery systems like the spacecraft, dinosaurs, or, uh, you know, even Project Orion. And didn't think we could cut the defense budget by a good large portion because he thought we still needed a balanced mix. And uh, that makes, you know, analysis a lot more difficult um, if you're a civilian by, you know, they want to trade ICB or, you know, bombers for ICBMs and, you know, other things to make their models work. Whereas power had the military experience, which is a different measure of analysis, uh, who thought that we didn't need just a handful of ICBMs. We needed a lot of uh, different weapons mixes. So power and strategic air command had a lot of enemies mm-hmm. where a caricature could have been useful for a lot of different people. And I think that's why it's stuck. But you know, what do we lose when historians maintain this perception? Well, we just don't understand strategic air command we don't understand their leaders, and we don't understand the Cold War. And maybe you don't understand what really happened, and maybe you take, maybe not completely misguided, because reasonable people can differ, but incomplete understandings of the past into the future, which tends to allow for mistakes to be made in the future. Yeah, I, so I think one of the things, too, that you lose in that caricature is a real three-dimensional view of the problem of nuclear deterrence, as you touched upon, you know, powers, the pinnacle of powers career coincided with the dawn and escalation of the Cold War. Obviously, powers didn't begin his military service contemplating this issue. um, But his finishing school, since as you noted, he didn't actually go, you know, finish, go to college, etc. But his finishing school was his early career, and especially his time in the Pacific during the Second World War. How, if at all, did that inform his approach to nuclear deterrence in the 1950s and 1960s? Well, it's a it's a great question, and it it's pretty clear 
that powers time in the Pacific during World War II. And you might even consider, uh, you know, just after that, when he was at Bikini Atoll watching the first uh, nuclear weapons tests there, changed him a lot. And one interesting thing that that I found out when I was reading is that, uh, you know, uh, again, back when we were going through our air power history courses, I heard that power was sadistic and sort of tyrannical uh, and just sort of a mean SOB, right? But when I looked through his, uh, started piecing together his early career and his early story, what comes out is that he was actually sort of a gentle, nice kid, (laughs) very sweet, always got along with people. And when he went into the service, he was sort of laid back, wanted to play a lot of golf, loved flying. Uh, You know, so you think uh, SAC in the 50s where, you know, you're going to fly the flight plan and that is it. And if you deviate by, you know, a couple of feet elevation, we're going to uh, take your wings and throw you back into, uh, you know, into civilian life where it was just exacting and, uh, you know, just a, a horrible place to work. You know, this guy seemed to be sort of the life of the party for for most of his career in the in the very beginning and was not known for, you know, a ramrod straight command or anything like that. Even as late as 1943, when he uh, or 44, when he finally got into an actual bombing unit in the European theater, because before that in World War II, he was a training officer. The one thing that everyone knew about him is he was sort of a nice guy and was the best uh, officer on the uh, the staff's uh, softball team, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then afterwards, you know, he goes to uh, Guam and is involved almost immediately in the firebombing of Japan. And, you know, up until the point that, uh, you know, LeMay, Curtis LeMay took over for General uh, Hansel, Japan was being bombed by precision, or at least they wanted it to be bombed, you know, uh, precision bombing with high explosives. But uh, firebombs were the original weapon of mass destruction. You know, so power started to develop a a very strict uh, running a tight ship command philosophy while he was at Guam. But there's just something happens to you when you lead the most destructive air raid in history, you know, which was the initial firebombing of Japan on the 10th of March, 1945, and then do it over and over again, all over a country for months that just changes you. And then if you, you know, are you, you're known for, you know, firebombs, which are extremely destructive anyway. And then you see a nuclear weapon, you realize firsthand that, you know, now you don't just defeat civilizations or defeat nations, you can utterly destroy them. And uh, I think that really makes power realize that it's like, wow, we have to be as professional and as serious as is humanly possible. And uh, I think that's when he realizes, especially when he gets tapped as SAC deputy uh, by LeMay, that, uh, you know, for the first time, we have the power of life and death over entire nations just in one or two or a handful of our wings or, or bombers. And, uh, and power decides to start being extremely serious. I think there's a lot of uh, evidence that 
that his Guam experience really does change him because there was a a book about the B-29 that came out in the late 50s by a guy named Gene Gurney that was Journey of the Giants. Power got to write the foreword. And in it, he talks about, hey, you know, strategic air war was really developed by the B-17 in Europe. But strategic aerospace warfare, which is critical for strategic air command and critical for deterrence, was really learned in the Pacific by the B-29. So whereas most uh, you know, Air Force historians would uh, argue that strategic bombing was really the story of the 8th Air Force in Europe, power and SAC, uh, to power's imagination, was, was developed by the B-29 in the Pacific in sort of a totally different fashion, using a totally different understanding of uh, what bombing is supposed to do. And I, well, I really do argue that uh, that SAC learned nuclear warfare from the the B twenty nine experience in the Pacific using firebombs. One other thing that seems evident, or at least it seems to be, there's a, a resonance between not only the the technology there, but also the the enemy, and you know, in Europe, bombing the Germans was a different animal in many ways than in the Pacific, bombing the Japanese and Japanese attitudes towards surrender are often, and I think rightly, adduced as justification for the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I was wondering while I was reading the book, this section of the book, did power transfer this theory of mind to the Soviets? Meaning, did power believe that like the Japanese, the USSR would only respond to an overwhelming existential threat? You know, I don't know if it was a transfer of, of mind in that something that power saw that there was something unique about Japan where they just refused to surrender and then attributed that to the Soviet Union as much as power had experience in fighting total war with what passed as a weapon of mass destruction. So, you know, um, World War II against Japan was a total war for unconditional surrender. This is about as desperate as it gets in, right. in military history. And one comparison that I, that I would say uh, is that power really started to get sort of a hawkish mentality in the 1930s when he was in the Philippines, uh, seeing what Japan was doing in China. And uh, he sort of had that hawkish mindset where he, he got back from Philippines, you know, service in the, in the 30s and just started talking to everyone he could about, hey, we're going to fight the Japanese here pretty soon because they're being overly aggressive. So um, what he said about Japan in the 30s does appear to seem pretty close to what he would say with uh, with Russia in the 50s. So you might have something something there, but I would prefer to to argue that he understood, power understood what it takes to bring an aggressive enemy to heal and what it might ultimately take, which is total destruction of their, you know, their country. He did not want that to happen. Power for all his, you know, people attribute his brutishness and and stuff like that. Uh, He said all the time during public speeches that if humanity went to general nuclear war, you know, humanity would have reached the highest plateau of stupidity. 
uh, he knew that if this happened, you know, if nuclear war happened, it would be a a disaster. Maybe not an unconscionable disaster because SAC had to think about the unthinkable. That was their job. But he knew that it was it was incumbent upon him to do everything that he could to prevent that from happening. So uh, with his view of deterrence, and I think the more modern view of, you know, deterrence equals capability times will, power would, you know, agree with that and understood that in a very, you know, visceral sense. So uh, he was just like, look, I have a very dangerous weapon. The best way to keep the peace is to make sure I understand how to use this weapon uh, as intimately and as efficiently as possible. And, you know, maximize the capability. And then, you know, the other side of the equation will, or not the other side of the equation, but the other, you know, the multiplicative factor, the will, uh, we have to make sure that the adversary understands that we will use this weapon as horrible as it is at a moment's notice. And if you maximize both, you're going to increase deterrence. And the deterrence factor is the only way that we can keep humanity from doing something stupid. So, you know, I'm not sure if he, if power really did see anything unique about the Germans and transferred that to the Russians. I think that he might have been every bit as uh, the same person if we had to deter the Chinese or, you know, as, as weird as it might think, you know, Canada or France or, or anyone else. I think that's just how he thought of warfare in the defense of the United States. But definitely an interesting question to think about, though. So any any discussion of American strategic air power necessarily invokes the specter of Curtis LeMay, who you noted earlier was Powers' commanding officer at SAC and uh, really throughout a lot of his career in the late 40s and 50s. What was their relationship like? And is it fair to argue, as many do, that power was inextricably caught in LeMay's orbit? Or was he really a force unto himself? Well, it's it's interesting because I think that power deserves to be considered his own man. And I think he was a power unto himself, you know, pardon the pun. <laughs> but the simple fact of the matter is, is that LeMay was larger than life. He just was. There probably hasn't been an Air Force officer that has been been so burned into the public imagination as as Curtis LeMay, at least back in the you know 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It seems like a lot of people are sort of forgetting about him now. But if you think strategic bombing, you think Curtis LeMay. Doesn't matter. You know, he was there leading bombers, leading B-17s personally in Europe, even when power was just teaching people how to fly out in San Antonio. So uh you know, LeMay was there. LeMay started the firebombing campaign in Japan. Uh, he was there during, you know, in the 8th Air Force during the worst raids of the, the B-17. He was not the first commander of Strategic Air Command, but the first real commander of Strategic Air Command, right? So whenever, no matter how good you are, if you're second fiddle, you know, like power was, you know, I argue quite forcefully that that power was the one that designed the um, low-level fire raids, a uh, radar-guided you know mission set that uh, that really allowed the firebombing of Tokyo to happen. I think power came up with that uh, that flight plan, that mission plan. Um, but LeMay 
was the one that authorized it. And he was in overall command. LeMay was the one that brought Sack from, you know, a backwater morale in the dumps, you know, ex uh, World War II bomber bunch into, you know, one of the best fighting forces ever constructed in human history. Power was right there the whole time, but he was always second in command. And, um, uh, and it's just power is going to be eclipsed by Curtis LeMay, no matter what power does. But I do think power is not just a lackey, because especially as we, you know, when I got into reading about what was left in the history about Orion, it's pretty clear that power had LeMay's ear when power was strategic air command commander and LeMay was vice chief of staff and ultimately chief of staff. In many instances, especially about Orion, it was power that essentially kept arguing to LeMay, we need this, we need this, we need this. And LeMay believed him, you know, and tried his best to get Orion into the Air Force space program. Ultimately, it didn't work. But you can definitely see that uh, the power was leading LeMay in the Orion fight. They were maybe not equal and certainly in the historical record, not equal. But um, they were both very important folks. You know, the the interesting thing is that uh, their personal relationship is unclear. Power got the reputation of being sort of a a sadist by, uh, you know, McCanley uh, when uh, he was helping LeMay write Mission with LeMay. uh, He asked, hey, uh, you know, what about this power guy? Was he a sadist and as big a jerk as everyone says he is? And LeMay said, well, of course he was a sadist, but he got the job done, you know, and LeMay really did use the word sadist. He wasn't the first one, you know, he didn't bring it up, but he sort of said, well, yeah. And, you know, I think people have been using that to, to beat uh, power up ever since. And I think, you know, just thinking about how this could have happened, LeMay was a very gruff individual. He probably just said, yeah, whatever, you know, but didn't really realize that using that particular word would, would would sort of uh, carry. But in reading Power in LeMay's correspondence, there just isn't a whole lot of personal correspondence. I mean, there's a few, but it's very cordial, you know, not very, um, not personable. You know, Power had a lot of friends that he was very informal with, and LeMay wasn't one of them. But one interesting thing that I found was um, in 1968, in the presidential election, LeMay was uh, agreed to be George Wallace's running mate in a third party bid for the White House. There is no record whatsoever that Power even acknowledged that LeMay was running for vice president of the United States. Power was very, very actively a Nixon supporter. Does that mean anything about their personal relationship? I don't know, but I think it's an interesting data point. And you know, they did favorably review each other's books after they left the service, after they were both retired. But there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of personal relationship there. It doesn't seem like they hung out after they retired or anything like that. So it's it's intriguing. You know, it's obvious that they professionally respected each other. But maybe they both thought that we've been together so long, maybe we want to strike out and be, uh, you know, individuals again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm sure the association with George Wallace in the late 1960s didn't do anything to bolster Sachs' public reputation. So perhaps perhaps there's something there to that as well. That is probably pretty accurate. One thing that you 
really highlighted, which I think is also, again, gets eclipsed by the association with LeMay, was the idea that power was instrumental in creating the modern concept of an aerospace as opposed to merely an air force. What did power have in mind when he advocated for an aerospace force? And how did that bring him into contact with something that you brought up earlier, uh, the development of the ICBM and the extension of warfare into space itself? I think this is where power most needs to be reconsidered as a leader of the aerospace movement in the Air Force. Most people, when they talk about space power in the Air Force, and then the 60s will bring up Air Force Chief of Staff General White when he says, hey, we're an aerospace force because air and space are an indivisible medium. Good rhetoric, not a whole lot of action. But it seems like power believed it. I mean, he did everything he could to incorporate space into the Air Force. And he did that starting out at Air Research and Development Command in the, in the mid to late 50s. The Atlas ICBM landed in his lap, and General Schriever, who would ultimately be, is, is understood right now to be the father of the Air Force Space and Missile Program, was power subordinate. And even though power eventually did give a lot of you know, individual responsibility and authority to, to Schriever, even though he didn't like it very much in the beginning because he, didn't, he wasn't a huge fan of Schriever at first, power just thought the world of Schriever a few years later which might or might not have had to do with how good a golfer Schriever was, but he certainly got the ICBM working. Power was very interested in space. And I think he was interested in space because of his experience in the Air Force. Now, we have to think back about a person like Power's career in the Air Force. He started out flying in the you know late 20s where he was working on comparatively ancient World War I training aircraft, canvas things that would crash all the time, very lightweight, very hard to fly, just archaic technology. And in the span of just over you know 20 years, they went from these planes that could barely fly to supersonic Mach 2 plus bombers that were carrying weapons that could destroy entire cities by themselves. This is an unbelievable amount of technological development in the span of one active flying career. So it's clear that even though Power didn't go to college, he had a very technical mind. He was a construction foreman, a very young one, working in uh, New York before he joined the Air Force. And he got very good grades at, at the maintenance school uh, the Air, Air Corps Technical School when he was a, a young flyer with engineering officer duties. So he was he had a technical mind and he probably believed the scientists when they said, we can do this. He was very interested in not necessarily an ICBM. He thought of it as a good weapon, but not the ultimate weapon. He was more interested in taking the Air Force to space and to gaining as much operational capability where we have the ability uh, you know, he wanted to have the Air Force fly in space as easy as they could fly in the air to perform strategic missions, which was the Air Force's bread and butter in the 50s and 60s. He wanted operational capability for what would now be considered movement, maneuver, fires, communication, 
all that kind of stuff. And he really did believe people when the civilian scientists said, we can get giant spacecraft in the orbit that could move anywhere around you know, orbital space that they needed to be in order to complete any mission that you would like, uh, like Orion offered. Now, you got to remember that Orion, uh, which I guess we'll get into uh, eventually, but the nuclear pulse propulsion you know, engine concept was developed by people that operated in the you know, Manhattan Project in World War II, a lot of them, and still worked at Los Alamos National Labs. These are the smartest guys in the room. And Power thought that, wow, if I had this capability, we could do Air Force missions in space easier. And that would make us a lot safer because deterrence would be increased. Power really wanted to bridge the gap between the air and space. And it is unfortunate that he wasn't, unfortunate for the Air Force that he wasn't allowed to. Because even though now we can say, hey, space and air are linked well, now we have an independent Air Force and an independent Space Force. So it seems like the nation has acknowledged that Air Forces and Space Forces are different. Whether that's good or bad, people can differ. As a space person, I happen to believe it's good, but mostly because the Air Force took space and botched it, or at least let you know the civilians botch it, because they didn't listen to power. But if power would have had his way and all else turned out okay, let's say, space forces would look a lot different today. And it would probably be airmen still flying them. But power most needs to be understood as a great aerospace leader, a visionary far better than Bernard Schriever. And there's even evidence of this as far back as, uh, you know, in the 30s, power came up with an idea for what was essentially a a proximity air-to-air missile. Uh, which had been thought of before, but uh, not really well popularized. So, you know, power was an innovative officer, even in the 30s. And people just don't understand that. And uh, and I think rockets and space was on his mind for a lot because he believed that American science could do it because American science took him from canvas bombers to, you know, aluminum or titanium supersonic bombers. It's... Uh, I can't even imagine that amount of technological change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're all amazed when the new iPhone comes out with three cameras. You can flip it forward and back? Yeah. But <laughs> what an amazing world we live in. Exactly. But comparatively, that's a technological drop in the bucket compared to the, the rapid you know, revolution in aviation technology you just outlined. Let's linger on Project Orion a bit. Given that... Power was already acculturated or just had achieved some level of comfort with rapid technological change. Is that why he threw his support behind Project Orion? And maybe we should just start by going into a little more granular detail about what Project Orion exactly was. And ultimately, do you think that Project Orion was pulled back down to Earth because the civilian space program, which was also ramping up at the same time, was given preferential treatment and that the Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration didn't want space to be militarized or to have the Soviets imagine that space was going to be a new demand for warfare. Yeah, I think space in the 
United States in the 50s and 60s was a very strange and uncertain field to be in. Eisenhower really wanted space for peaceful purposes, and he created NASA, and he put NASA sort of at the forefront of the public space community in the United States. But he also supported, you know, a military program. So there was a weird duality where, you know, NASA's public face was civilian, but their astronauts were almost entirely military pilots, you know, that were on a leave of absence from the military and like, okay. But it was an uncertain time and people really didn't know exactly what was happening. The Air Force had tried for ages to get the mission of space in the Department of Defense. And they were rebuffed almost every time uh, to the point where, you know, we understand DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency we have now, was originally ARPA, which was the Advanced Research Projects Agency, was stood up in the late 50s, essentially to be sort of a civilian-run military space force. But that didn't work out exactly right. So the Air Force had a very weird time in that they were trying to get the space mission but couldn't. And, you know, a lot of people in the Air Force didn't understand space anyway, but it was just very confused. And this confusion was all about what do we do with chemical rockets and small satellites that were the size of a bread box or a small car or really small, very little, uh, not a whole lot of capability satellites. And then, you know, imagine someone walking in saying, look, we have a proposal for a nuclear pulse propulsion system that is that uses very miniature nuclear explosions to the level of a half kiloton and tapers up as it goes you know as the rocket goes higher into you know a couple of kilotons to a couple of tens to a couple of hundreds you know using nuclear explosions to propel something in the orbit and when most people in the 50s and 60s were talking about launching a couple of hundred pounds, maybe a ton or more of stuff to low Earth orbit, these physicists, not even rocket scientists, physicists, nuclear weapons designers, were saying we could build a ship as heavy as a U.S. Navy light cruiser and get it to orbit. And with that amount of payload, thousands of tons of ship, hundreds if not thousands of tons of payload, you could do whatever you wanted with it. You know, uh, in the 50s and 60s, they were saying they could get 100 people to Mars or a couple dozen people to Saturn by 1970 using external nuclear explosions in the atmosphere to propel these massive ships into orbit. And then once they get to orbit, propel them anywhere in the solar system. One aerospace historian that I read called the Orion the USS Enterprise of the mid-20th century. Unbelievable explosion of cap- you know, the envelope of capability in space. But you had some of the smartest people in the world wondering what they were supposed to do with rockets that could get maybe a ton or two to orbit. And then you've got someone else saying, hey, I can get you thousands of tons to orbit. That's a huge cultural shock. And the way a lot of people assumed Orion you know, the assumption of Orion from a lot of people in NASA and especially in the Department of Defense is like, 
that's ridiculous. We're having, you know, too much difficulty just trying to get a couple tons into orbit. There's no way that we can get, you know, thousands of tons to orbit. This capability is impossible. And a lot of people thought this capability was impossible because they weren't used to thinking in terms of having that kind of capability because they were struggling with rockets without realizing that this was this level of technology was a whole different they called them s curves of technology far more capable far more useful and there's a lot of evidence that the military and the civilian dod essentially was like hey first of all orion is too expensive it's too difficult it won't work and even if we could get thousands of tons to orbit you know we wouldn't know what to do with it which is remarkable when you think about it it's like someone in the Air Force saying in 1907 that, hey, um, you know, we have this right flyer and we don't really know what we want to do with it beyond observation. So take your B-17 and go away. <laughs> it was just people were confronted with a class of technology that no one expected. But the people that came up with it were literally some of the smartest people on the planet at the time. You know, Stan Ulam, who developed it, was a Manhattan Project al alum. The person that was designing it, the lead designer, was a guy named Ted Taylor, who is widely regarded as the best fission bomb maker in history. You know, the chief scientist for General Atomic for Project Orion was a guy named Freeman Dyson, who is widely regarded as one of the most brilliant scientists of the 20th century. But the difference is, is that when people that thought they were scientists from, you know, MIT and brought on board to presidential science advisors and stuff like that were, were smart, but not really briefed well on that kind of technology. They just dismissed it. But someone like Power, on the other hand, who saw the military industrial, what some people would call the military industrial complex, developing miracle after miracle after miracle for 30 years. He's like, Power was obviously of the uh, opinion that it's like, this is just the next miracle that these guys are going to come up with. So he believed it. So I think power was open to that kind of groundbreaking, you know, technology applied to space and thought about, well, if I had this operational capability, what would I do with it? And being a strategic air command guy, he was like, hey, we could have an airborne alert in space that would not require any fuel. Being in orbit, we could have our nuclear deterrent up there. And if the Soviet Union wanted to attack our nuclear deterrent, they would have to attack it in space. And it would be better for the American people if all the nuclear capability of the Soviet Union was pointed to orbit rather than Buffalo, New York, Chicago, the major American cities, or the SAC bases that were you know, a lot around all the cities. Put it into orbit. And oh, by the way, if we had a whole lot of Orion craft flying around. We could also do battle damage assessment, global command and control. We could really fight a nuclear war from space very, very well. And if we could fight a nuclear war from space very, very well, that would increase our capability, that would increase our will, and that would make deterrence that much stronger. So I think it's pretty clear that Power wanted a strategic aerospace command that really incorporated space as much as possible into America's nuclear deterrence posture. But he wasn't simply thinking about that. He was thinking, hey, once we have these Orion craft that were every bit as capable as an airplane in the air, you know, you could do whatever you wanted with it. 
you could send people to the moon. You could send people to Mars. Why not do that? That's not my job. But hey, if we can help build a capability, why not? So I think Power was far more open to visionary thinking because he was convinced that American science and technology could do anything. And just reading Power's thoughts, there's not very many things that we talk about in space right now that uh, he or his people didn't think about 50, 60 years ago. It's, it's amazing. Thinking about developing a, a capability that was in some way inoculated from a Soviet threat here on Earth seems to also be because, as you argue in the book, that when power succeeds LeMay as the commander-in-chief of SAC in 1957, he's actually the first CNC to face a credible Soviet threat. And I think the credible seems to be the key word here. He's playing against an opponent with a viable capability, which is a different proposition than merely theorizing about what such a game might be like. How did the reality, maybe we touched upon this a little bit, but how did the reality and the omnipresence of a viable Soviet nuclear capability affect his approach to deterrence and the strategic disposition composition of SAC forces. Yeah, it's quite clear that the fantastic compression of time, to use Power's words, was his overwhelming strategic consideration as, uh, as SAC commander. LeMay's SAC, there was a nuclear threat from the Soviet Union that generally increased over time. So it's not like LeMay didn't have to stare down the Soviet Union and its its nuclear capability. But honestly, LeMay-SAC had to deal with bombers, with Soviet bombers. They had hours before the bombers could get over American cities. We would probably see them very quickly, relatively speaking. Uh, you could send up interceptors. You could wage a defensive air war to try to protect American people because you had hours. Now, granted, hours was a big deal back in the day because, you know, uh, World War II was fought in years. Mm. Global thermonuclear war in the 50s was probably going to be over in hours, which is infinitely more difficult. But then you deal with, with powers, SAC. When power takes SAC in the late 50s, he's almost immediately confronted with Sputnik, which means that they have an ICBM. The Soviet Union has an ICBM. They can deliver a warhead in half an hour, anywhere. That makes it way more difficult because now there is absolutely no room for mistakes. You have to be able to launch your deterrent in 15 minutes, which is about how much time we thought that we would have between knowing that the Soviet Union launched and them actually impacting. So all of a sudden... SAC had to respond at literally a moment's notice. And that's why it was power, not necessarily LeMay, that came up with the SAC alert force that really pushed the Chrome Dome experiments into becoming a full-fledged airborne alert. Because if you could not get a nuclear weapon in the air in 15 minutes, it was going to be destroyed on the ground. You were not going to be able to use it. That is the strategic reality that power faced. And power, 
did everything he could to make sure that SAC was able to respond in those 15 minutes. Because if they couldn't respond in that 15 minutes, you might as well not have built SAC to begin with. And uh, that's why he liked the ICBM as much as he did. And he did like the ICBM and it's, you know, it wasn't again, the ultimate weapon, but it was a very good weapon. It was something that was quick reacting, which he needed. And after you got the Minuteman solid fueled ICBM, it became much more survivable, but that's what, that's what his sack had to deal with. And, uh, you know, his other big strategic initiative and innovation that he had was this strategic, you know, the, uh, the single integrated operational plan or the PSYOP. And the PSYOP was Powers' you know, approach to trying to get everyone on the same page for nuclear warfare. Because when SAC had the monopoly of the nuclear weapons in the United States, it was just an Air Force planning problem. There were SAC bombers, and that was all they had to plan for. But then more people started getting weapons you know, based off of President Eisenhower's new look. Air Force tactical fighters started getting nuclear weapons. Carrier aircraft for the U.S. Navy started to get nuclear weapons. Ballistic missile submarines started to come out with nuclear weapons. And all of a sudden, if you got into a general nuclear war, you had to coordinate all of these different uh, military equipment. And they found when they were looking at war plans that there was a lot of overlap. There was a lot of stepping on each other's toes. And by that, I mean a Navy aircraft would probably be destroyed in an Air Force attack and vice versa. It was just uncoordinated. And if you had an uncoordinated nuclear attack that you had to take care of in 15 minutes or less, your capability suffers a huge hit and your credibility suffers a huge hit. American nuclear forces just were not ready for immediate nuclear warfare. So the single integrated operational plan was the first plan that was completely coordinated. Everyone knew what they were supposed to do. Everyone could plan for what they were supposed to do. And they knew that if they understood the PSYOP, they understood what they were supposed to do when they had to go to war within 15 minutes worth of notice. And that was a, was a radical innovation that LeMay could theorize about, probably think about, but not actually have to build and present and train for. And the thing is, that was a great revolutionary capability for American nuclear warfare. Of course, now it seems like you know the first thing that you hear about about the PSYOP, especially the early ones, was that it was a recipe for overkill. And that just opens up a whole new, you know, a whole different can of worms between the military mind and the civilian mind. But everything that Power did when he was SAC commander was focused on rapid reaction because it wasn't just the Soviet bombers coming over the horizon or a theoretical strike where they had hours to prepare. This was, if you weren't ready right now, you weren't ready ever. And uh, a very stressful time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of that stress and the, the extreme compression of time, you note in the book that, and you just touched upon there briefly, the idea that SAC would be on constant ready alert, that Operation Chrome Dome, where there would be always be B-52s in the air, ready to deliver a nuclear payload at a moment's notice. What impact did that have on the, the human crew? Because obviously the technology is one component, but pilots, the ground crews, et cetera, they are also an integral part of the system. And 
this seems one area where the Doctor Strange love caricature comes into contact with reality and what whiz kids in the Kennedy administration and you know co- political commentators uh, were worried about the idea that a rogue officer could precipitate nuclear Armageddon, maybe not because they are zealots for the cause, but just because, you know, but just because they're, they're tired. And we do know that in the history of nuclear weapons, you know, we did stand on the precipice unintentionally numerous times. Did power worry about this? And if so, what mechanisms did he put in place to mitigate the potential for an unintentional nuclear strike? Well, there's no doubt that that power was worried about his crews. Certainly, he knew how hard it was to be on crew, and uh, he pushed for uh, extra pay for alert crews and a lot of other perks because he knew that was very stressful. But this is where the the toughness and the and the you know the mentality comes in. In that you know he was a World War II generation guy. He fought the war. And the World War II generation had a toughness, you know, a well-earned toughness that a lot of other people in the 60s and 70s didn't necessarily, you know, have that same experience. But, you know, he saw it as it's a hard life, but you chose this life and we're going to hold you to these standards. And yeah, it was brutal, but you can handle it. And if you can't handle it, we can't have you in Strategic Air Command. And that is probably where his sort of sadistic and cruel caricature comes from, or at least why some people thought he was cruel, is because the one thing that, that was interesting about Power is he, he liked to play the part that he felt he should play. Now, sometimes it was, you know, enjoying being sort of an aristocratic, sort of overbearing, over-the-top commander. He would, he would do that sometimes, play to the audience. But he thought he needed to, you know, have that role that, hey, life is tough. Um, We're going to be tough on you because nuclear war is going to be a lot tougher, but you can handle it. So that's sort of how he handled it. The stress is like, you're a professional. Do your job. Now, in the civilian world, that, you know, I don't mean to, to belittle civilians at all, but that's not generally what civilian people deal with that often. So... If people are predisposed to thinking that nuclear weapons are dangerous and then hear that, you know, SAC alert crews are just having to do a brutal, you know, this this brutal schedule, you know, a lot of people wonder, well, how can you do it? And then SAC people would say, well, you do it because you have to. But what's interesting, especially about, you know, Dr. Strangelove and, and other things, is that it seems like a lot of this this thinking about, hey, a rogue SAC officer could start World War World War III and end all life on Earth as we know it, either because he's insane or because of just out of a simple accident, actually emerged from Russian propaganda. Hmm. <laughs> um, that's the one, one of the interesting things that I found there is that uh, in April 1958, Soviet propaganda started pushing out a fake letter saying that two-thirds of American airmen suffered from war psychosis or other very serious psychological disorders. And, uh, you know, it was a a letter that was supposedly from a mid-level defense official to the Secretary of Defense and said, see, look, 
strategic air command people and pilots are all insane. And they might not be, you know, they might start a war simply because they're out of their mind. And, you know, therefore these airborne alerts and these alerts are dangerous and should be stopped. You know, that was this Soviet propaganda. And then as soon as that came out, then you started to see the books, you know, Red Alert and Failsafe that turned into the movies Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove. I would not go so far as to say that, uh, that, you know, these books that are about accidental nuclear war and satires, you know, like Dr. Strangelove were, you know, Soviet propaganda. But the thing is, Soviet propaganda, serious Soviet propaganda makes for brilliant comedic satire. <laughs> the, the problem is, is that when you start thinking that the satire is actually real and power had a, had a horrible problem with this, uh, he didn't really understand it. And well, he didn't understand why Americans would think that, you know, Sack, his boys were all insane or he wanted to start World War III. It's like the only person that can start World War III is the president. Mm. That's just the way it is. And when people would say, well, yeah, but aren't you worried about this kind of stuff? It's like, well, we have safeguards against accidental things. And I believe it was in Red Alert, you know, the war is started because a sack officer accidentally knocks over an ashtray, <laughs> you know, and then Dr. Strangelove is an obviously insane wing commander can start nuclear, you know, World War Three on his own. And power would respond to people that would write to him. There was one person in particular, I think it was a young woman that that wrote to power saying, how is it that the Air Force can allow Dr. Strangelove to be played in theaters? Isn't it just a horrible slander against our Air Force? And power wrote back, you know, essentially like, uh, hey, that's not the military's job. We have freedom of speech in this country. Yeah, you know, it. there's a lot of untruthfulness in that movie, but it's up to the American people to realize that it's comedy, not reality. Right. And uh, in response to some of these Dr. Strangelove and Red Alert and all this other kind of stuff, he started talking a lot more to public people, inviting civic leaders from around the world into in a sack. And a lot of his uh, speeches are um, are still saved. You know, his discussions are, are saved uh, and digitized at the Historical Research Agency here at Maxwell. Hmm. And where he just tried to talk to the American people about Strategic Air Command to try to diffuse some of this worry. And with a, with a couple of decades left of hindsight, you know, hindsight, it doesn't seem like he did that much. He wasn't that successful because we still wonder about could a rogue sack officer start World War III? Could, you know, we were on the, like you say, we were on the precipice a couple of different times and, you know, uh, nuclear weapons are extremely dangerous. Uh, like people like Scott Sagan would, would argue. And uh, Power's response would be, yeah, but nothing happened. Because the things that we had in place, the fail-safes that we had, fail-safe being the fail-safe point is when the plane would fly back. If it didn't receive any word, you had to have a positive go for them to prosecute nuclear warfare. So the fail-safe was really meant to, if the system failed, it would fail in the safe mode. <laughs> right. Um, we still think to this day that we were on the precipice a lot of different times in the Cold War. 
Power would probably argue that it's like, no, we had it under control the whole time because SAC is your nuclear professionals and we acted professionally. And he could say, look, he did not live very long. Within about five years of retirement, he he died unexpectedly of a heart attack. If he would have lived a little bit longer, he died at about 65. If he would have stuck around to his mid-70s, we would probably have a lot more interesting insight from him. But, you know, I think he would argue that SAC was a professional, you know, peace was their profession and they kept it because no SAC nuclear weapon was ever dropped in anger. And not very many conventional SAC bombs were dropped in anger under powers command. Oh, with red alert though, here's what you were having to deal with or what power was having to deal with. Red alert was to SAC just an unbelievably there's no way that this could happen. You know, they were just not totally dismissive of it because they were arrogant. It was because it's like, look, this isn't how the system works. We would understand this. We've thought a lot about this. We've thought it through and our safeguards are probably pretty good. But Red Alert was bought by a lot of defense intellectuals around Washington, D.C. One guy bought a ton of them and then just gave them to everyone he knew. So what most people, even in Washington, D.C., probably knew about SAC was from books like Red Alert and Failsafe. And it seems like it shows. But that's just the, the nature of, of democracy, right? Yeah. So, you know, were there a lot of mistakes? Of course there are. The fog and friction of warfare exists in nuclear warfare, same as anything else. It's a tribute, in my opinion, and Power would definitely say that, it's a tribute to SAC that even though there were a lot of problems and a lot of mistakes, and there were, they did not become catastrophic mistakes. It's also unfortunate that the public perception was shaped by Dr. Strangelove and Red Alert when during Power's tenure as the CNC of SAC, his concept or his idea that SAC's profession was peace and that he was securing peace by making SAC the master of nuclear war was stress-tested during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. And does the outcome of the crisis vindicate both Powers' bellicose disposition and his capability greed, his idea that he wanted to have as many weapons and as many different various platforms as possible, in that SAC proved to be a credible deterrent to a Soviet nuclear first strike? And does it also vindicate him, as we just spoke about, and the idea that when nuclear weapons are handled by nuclear professionals, it can actually be handled safely and incredibly competently and not lead, lead not to war, but to uh, a peaceful resolution. Well, I, th I think power would, would believe that. And other people have defended it as such. That's not generally how, it's, uh, how the Cuban Missile Crisis is regarded nowadays. You know, um, a lot of people would say that, oh, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is when humanity almost blew itself up. One thing that I thought was interesting is, uh, you know, in my research, I found a panel about strategic air warfare, and that's essentially nuclear warfare, hmm. at the Air Force Academy in the mid-80s. General LeMay was there, and, you know, in my uh, counterfactual imagination, I really would have liked to imagine how it would have turned out if power was there, too. But a couple of generals were talking about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And one guy, General David Birkenall, said that the American public had the Cuban Missile Crisis all wrong. You know, his quote was, you know, we were never further from nuclear war than at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
And he said that because America had complete nuclear superiority over the Russians in Cuba. And he said that, you know, by implication, it was that Powers Sack had Russia beat. Now, later research would suggest that maybe there were missiles on Cuba that were ready to go that could have struck the uh, eastern seaboard. But the fact of the matter is, is if, if general nuclear war would have happened, the Soviet Union would have been completely obliterated in a way that the United States would not have been. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this would have been great or not. What was it in uh, in Dr. Strangelove? Uh, no, Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but militarily, the Soviet Union was not going to be able to stand up to the United States. And that increased in General Birkenau's mind deterrence in that, you know, the Soviet Union backed down. Now, I am not saying at all that you shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, that the back channel dealings between Khrushchev and, and Kennedy weren't very important. Uh, they're always important. Clausewitz would say politics is most important. But when you have the military, when you have military superiority, that is a great card to have in your back pocket. But if you have that counter, if you if you consider that countercultural argument of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you'll see what SAC thought of themselves, and undoubtedly what Power would have thought of himself, or you know, in his his command. There were a lot of mistakes that were made during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and just a few of them were uh, during the you know the the fourteen days in October, the the worst part of the stand the standoff. Uh, both the Soviet Union and the United States actually fired ICBMs off their test ranges. Now, talk about like <laughs> um, provocative you know, action. Well, the thing is, was it provocative action or was it just bureaucracy? Because when uh, uh, General or not General um, President Kennedy, when he heard that uh, they fired off a couple of missiles, you know, from Vandenberg, he sort of quipped, "It's like there's always some SOB that doesn't get the memo." <laughs> Right. Now, I'm not saying that you should have that we should have launched these these rockets. Now, the good thing is they were coming off of Vandenberg or Florida that were obviously tests, but not something that you want to have happen. Right. That really screws up with things because people might find them to be provocative. There was a U-2 that got lost over the North Pole and flew directly over the Soviet Union. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of frowned upon. Right. There were a lot of different issues, even when the, the Minuteman ICBMs, and I really do think the Cuban Missile Crisis should be considered a great triumph of, of the American missileer when they were trying to put all the missiles that they could on alert to increase that capability as much as possible. There were Minuteman ICBMs that, no joke, in order to get them to fire, a poor enlisted guy was going to have to go run over right next to the... Um, uh, the cover of the of the missile silo to blow the explosive bolts, you know, essentially by hand, and then bolt out of there before the missile took off in order to get these things to fire correctly. But they figured out how to do it, and they were capable of being able to be at a at on you know at the president's call. So, strategic air command during the the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, had things that they trained on that were hard to do, like medium bomber dispersal, 
airborne alert. They were on the highest alert they'd ever been. And then they dealt with a whole bunch of other issues like that. But what happened is that they did that with consummate professionalism. And we didn't get into a uh, an accidental nuclear war. Now, it's undoubted that Power was extremely proud of, of Strategic Air Command for doing that. You know, that probably doesn't mean that he wouldn't agree that nuclear weapons are something that need to be taken incredibly seriously, because he would. The difference is, is that Power, as a military professional, thought that the risk of nuclear weapons and operating nuclear weapons were worth the payoff they got in deterrence value, whereas some civilians, people like Fred Kaplan and, you know, in the Wizard of, Wizards of Armageddon, um, and other people might not have agreed that nuclear weapons were worth their deterrence capability and would start to say, hey, look, there were a lot of mistakes that were made. Therefore, the Cuban Missile Crisis was on a precipice of you know, global thermonuclear destruction. And I don't think power would agree. I, w- I would think the power said, hey, look, the system worked because we dealt with the fog and friction of warfare and nuclear warfare and came out with a positive outcome. You know, and even Power himself took a hit on this because he did transmit in the open, increasing this, the DEFCON alert for, uh, for Strategic Air Command. It didn't have to be back in those days, but normally that would be considered, you know, a raise in the DEFCON level would be considered a classified thing. Hmm. Power broadcasted in the open. And a lot of people, including people in the military, a few, thought that that was a provocative act itself. And that was written about by Scott Sagan in his book, The Limits of um, The Limits of Safety, where it's like, hey, you know, power was essentially daring the Soviets to attack. But then after the the recording came out and after his transcript came out, even Scott Sagan had to say, you know, no, power wasn't trying to go to the Soviet Union. He was telling his scared nervous and tired, overworked crews, look, do your job. We are supporting you. If you have any questions whatsoever, you call us at SAC headquarters directly. You know, he was trying to calm down his troops and exhibit a sense of calm and professionalism and competency to make sure that everyone out in the field who were doing things that they were trained for but we're not used to and we're worried about having to go to nuclear war, you know, making sure everyone stayed calm, professional, and uh, at the best level that they could possibly operate. So if people look back at the story of, of Strategic Air Command, you can certainly point out that there were mistakes that were made, but there are always mistakes made in something as complex as military operations. The key, and you know, Clausewitz called it, you know, military genius, is that you have to have the capability to take all of that, all of the mistakes, all the incomplete information, all the errors, all the difficulty, and get the job done anyway. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, in my opinion, suggested that SAC had the ability to defeat fog and friction of war to get the job done and protect the nation. This brings me to the the final question, the, the question of power's legacy. And to borrow a phrase from Dan Carlin, the concept of logical insanity. Talked a lot about revising our perception of power 
as a military thinker and a military leader. And the disconnect between the civilian mind and the military mind when thinking about nuclear deterrence and nuclear power. Considering power's remit, which as discussed was to plan for a literal Armageddon, it seems that there's little chance that he could be seen as anything other than a sociopath by historians and individuals whose day-to-day activities do not entail planning for the wholesale destruction of the human species. And I guess my question then is, can any human rationally contemplate the insane without appearing to be insane? And if the answer is no, then how should we think about power and his legacy for both the Air Force and now for Space Force? You know, it's a it's a good question of which I really don't know if anyone would ever determine a, a you know a definitive answer. You know what most people would probably you know historians, civilians at large, people that are generally anti-nuclear might consider as sadistic or insane or uh, or anything like that. I would think a person like Power would say, "Look, that's being professional." The nuclear weapon was there. Putting a genie back in a bottle doesn't happen very often. Not saying it can't or that people shouldn't necessarily try, but normally it doesn't happen. So not to throw them under the bus too much, but academics, and I am one now, so you know, I have some firsthand you know, knowledge of this. It's like if, if the academics great idea doesn't work in reality – you know, in real life, they can go back to their university, think another deep thought. And, you know, if you had a really good original thought, you probably have tenure. So you're protected from bad ideas or bad thinking. And you can choose what your your problem set is. And, you know, uh, Herman Kahn, who is, you know, a, a civilian nuclear theorist that's also considered someone insane, he was probably who Dr. Strangelove was based on. Uh, he called you know, nuclear war, you know, one of his books, Thinking About the Unthinkable. Well, an academic might say that nuclear war was unthinkable, but Strategic Air Command had to think about it because to them, it was delivering nuclear weapons with their aircraft. That's why they were learning to fly their aircraft. That's why they were learning to target their bombs. That's why they were learning, you know, memorizing their operational plan. They had to fight the nuclear war because the American people asked them to and paid them to. So, you know, the strategic air command folks, including general power were forced, you know, of course they, they were there as volunteers, certainly, but the American people told them master this nuclear weapon. And some people didn't like that. And some people attributed nuclear weapons to being bad or evil, and then therefore anyone that dealt with them or used them or thought about using them were also evil. It's it's unfortunate that that happens sometimes because especially being a military person myself, mostly a reservist, but I spent a lot of time or at least four and a half years on active duty. But um, you know, the military is just normal people like anyone else. <laughs> you know, there's not really anything you know, special or different, you know, we don't think differently, really. We have the same arguments. <laughs> right. And I think SAC was the same way, you know, and, and 
you know, if you don't understand a group, it's easy to caricature them or, you know, think the worst of them. And, uh, and then power just made it easier than most to think it's like, wow, is that guy nuts? <laughs> and there's no doubt that he was very much anti-communist and would say, would, would put a really hard line when he would talk to the president about the Soviet Union and such. But when you're given a job to, you know, for lack of a better term, play with the devil's toys, some people might consider you a devil yourself. I don't think that way. I don't think power was particularly evil because he was contemplating how he could best fight nuclear war. Because in his estimation, only by mastering the nuclear weapon and its use would prevent its use. As opposed to civilians and most of the military uh, nuclear theorists, honestly, that would you know simplify the problem by saying that the mere existence of the nuclear weapon will prevent its use. So that's two different understandings of deterrence. And uh, the problem is with deterrence, if deterrence fails, the civilians can go throw their hands up and run to their bomb shelter or have a stiff drink or do whatever it is they're going to do if they think that they're going to die in the next 15 minutes. But if deterrence failed, sack, they got in their planes, they went over there and they were going to blow something up or die trying. So I think ultimately the, the answer is, is that the, the civilian population owes it to their warriors to at least, you know, not bend to their will at anything or defer completely to their professional knowledge. That's not something that should be done, but a little bit more empathy for how you would react if you were responsible for contemplating things that you don't want to think about, you know, and how that might change your, your opinion on stuff. More understanding between the civilians and the nuclear operators are always a good thing. Because, you know, I haven't had to deal with with nuclear weapons. A lot of people haven't. But there are people today that are still doing the same work that General Power did. And, you know, they have to think about the unthinkable. And I, I think it's just a little bit more empathy from the civilian population at, at Strategic Air Command in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and Global Strike Command today. The people are there in uniform, not because they want to blow people up, but because they don't want to have to blow people up but are willing to take the hit and deal with bad things in order to keep their people safe. And I think power was the same way. And I think power would consider himself successful. Sack did not have to go to war under his command. And that is a successful command. Yeah, un undoubtedly, as your book reminds us, context matters. And I definitely think your reassessment of powers and his, his place in the not only the nuclear command, but the aerospace realm as well, uh, goes a long way towards hopefully fostering a better understanding of, of exactly how that functions and how non-military thinkers can relate to those who are tasked with those operations. Well, Brent, th oh, thanks. Th if, if you don't mind me uh, just uh, putting one thing out there, um, like I said, um, I didn't start out my, my career thinking that I was going to write about Tommy Power, but it is definitely sort of a revisionist history. And, and there's no doubt that I, I've warmed up to him an awful lot over my couple of years of, uh, of studying him. 
but I did look for for evidence of the caricature. I did look for evidence that he was cruel and sadistic and, and all this other stuff. And I think I tried to I, I definitely tried to put what I could find into my book. But the, the key is I didn't find a whole heck of a lot. And I ransacked a lot of different places. So if anyone is out there that thinks that they can write a better biography or defend the current understanding of, of who Tommy Power is, do it. Because I would love to see that argument. I think it's better to have a discussion and a, uh, a debate, you know, a reinvestigation of power rather than, you know, uh, what I really do not want to have happen is that power was thought one way for a long time. And then my book comes out and it says it's only biography. And then everyone all of a sudden thinks only what I said about him. Uh, I would really like to see him, uh, him, him studied in full. So if anyone else thinks they can add by all means, you know, let's do it. Well, there you, there you have it listeners. The, the gauntlet has been thrown down and obviously debate is the lifeblood of, of history. Brent, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Been very generous. Thank you again. Hey, thank you for having me. It, it was a, it's a real honor and it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And to all our listeners, thanks for tuning in.